Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us here on Rogers TV. If you're checking us or if you're just checking us out online, my name is Nick Kusterberg. I'm the pastor of Bethel Southwest. Uh, Bethel Southwest is a church plant out of Strathroy here at Bethel Strathroy that we planted back in December, uh, in December 2022. And um, it's just going so great. I am so amazed to see what God is doing. And as I just kind of get to join you guys this week to worship together, uh, I just want to thank you guys who have been, you all who have been um, supporting us, praying for us. We are so thankful for that. I mean, God is so good. And he's so gracious to us. And he's been working such great things. In, and I'm so excited to continue to see what God's doing. Again, again, just thank you so much for being here too. Um, I pray that this time is encouraging to you as we kind of go into God's word. At Bethel Church Family, our, our mission is to glorify God by being disciples who make disciples. And we can do that by just coming to his word, asking his word to change us. So I pray that that does that. So let me just begin this time in prayer. God, just thank you so much for this time. Thank you that we get to come to your word. Thank you that we get to, to, to see and know you. And Lord, I pray that this time would be most, mostly glorifying you, that we might see your word and know your word. Therefore, it might be transformed into the image of your son. God, be with me in these moments. In your son's name, amen. How many of you know what a phoropter is? Have you ever got your eyes checked? Uh, you go to the optometrist, you sit in this chair, and, and this person puts this thing in front of you, and it's called a phoropter. And they begin to ask you questions, one, two, or three. One, two, or three. One, two, or three. And to adjust to see what your new prescription is going to be. It's so interesting. Every time I walk into this optometrist building, I feel as though my eyes are good. They're, they're good until I get to this machine. Uh, and then the, the optometrist provides me with a new prescription, and then I begin to get my new lenses. And in those moments, putting on my new glasses, I begin to see the world in a new way. I begin to realize how fuzzy the world used to be. I feel this is so similar to us in our Christian walk with God. We walk about seeing the world through a certain lens. And through that lens, we, we make decisions. We are led to feel certain ways. We interpret the world around us. Often and easily, that lens becomes fuzzy. Whether it is due to trials in life, due to maybe idols that we really don't see, sins in our life that we really don't understand are there. Maybe it's just good things that have been taken too high a priority. Maybe it's just due to simple forgetfulness. Whatever it is, it's easy for our vision to become fuzzy. It's easy for the world to become distorted around us. Wow, so true in my life. Today's passage walks us through a psalmist's own journey of using a phoropter of God's word, using the phoropter of God's, who God is and what he's about to help reorient their vision, reorient the lens through which they see the world around them, knowing that has become fuzzy, knowing that they are currently seeing the world in a distorted state, but desiring not to remain in that state desiring not to remain in a distorted world. And honestly, because why would we? Why would we want to remain there? Because there comes weariness, burdensomeness, and stress. Again, we've been going through the book of Psalms. Last week we listened to Pastor Allen preach on Psalm 72. Now we're on Psalm 73. 
and, and we in this morning, and we want this big idea. Or hopefully, this big idea comes across to you, and this is it. We rightly see the world when we see it through the lens of God. We rightly see the world when we see it through the lens of God. Through this psalm, we'll see something amazing that's done. It, it provides us almost with a template, a template to walk this journey, walk the journey from fuzzy to clear, from distorted to focus. To see the world through which the through the lens through which God sees it. So he begins by this. He begins by naming the problem in verses one through three. The psalmist begins with a statement. A statement that is profound. And it says this in verse one. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. In this statement, an amazing truth is present. God is Good. Hear me again. Hear me again. God is good. This may seem like a simple statement, but the rest of the psalm hinges on this truth. Hinges on believing this one statement. God is good. I'll promise you this. The root of every sin that you will ever commit is doubting that truth. The root of everything you do against God is doubting that reality. But who is God good to, right? Because God can be good, but if he's not good to someone, what good is it? <laughs> it says this, God is good to Israel. Sometimes we need to understand the distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament when we read a passage like this. When it says that God is good to Israel, he's saying that God is good to his people. His people in the Old Testament are Israelites. But we see, what we see in the New Testament is a transition that takes place. That the, the people of God are no longer a specific nation, but a people who put their faith in Jesus. So Jesus says this as his last commandment given to his disciples in Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of what? All nations. Everyone. Well, in the Old Testament, the people of God were this certain nation now. God's promise from the beginning, God's plan from the beginning, but it's seeing it now in the New Testament that the people of God are the people who put their faith in Jesus, and they're from all nations. So now here, when, while Israel does mean Israel, we also understand through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we can put our name there. So when it says, truly God is good to Israel, now I can say, truly God is is good to me. Again, just resting that truth, believing that truth brings freedom, peace, worship. But in knowing this truth, the psalmist recognizes something, just like we know, that eventually there'll be fuzziness. Eventually that truth that God is good is not believed. And therefore the world becomes distorted. So he says this in verses two and three. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps have nearly, had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Can I stop? Can I stop? And let me just be honest for a second. Life is hard. If it's not one thing, it's another. If it's not sickness, it's financial problems. If it's not marriage struggles, it's wayward kids. The difficulty of life leaves no one unstained, 
unaffected. And in those moments, it's easy to look around and see what others are doing. It's easy to look around and envy the prosperity, desiring their affluence. There's a reason why we have a phrase that says this, the grass isn't always greener on the other side, because we are prone to think it is. Then on top of it, that person who's experiencing prosperity is wicked. It's one thing if you're a small group leader who sacrifices hugely, hugely gets the promotion and raise. But it's another thing when he's looked over for the guy who's wickedly went up the company ladder, the guy who's abusive, who's angry, who has manipulated everyone so that he can get that new raise, that new job. See, this is the problem that the Solomon sees and calls out in his life. The problem is not out there, but in here. The real problem is not that the psalmist isn't getting what he feels he deserves. The problem is that the psalmist's vision has become fuzzy. He needs to have his, his vision, his eyes, his lenses reoriented. How self-aware is he? Wow, understanding of what's going on. But the psalmist proclaims, and I understand this truth, God is good. God loves his people. We see this in Romans 5, 8, but God showed his love, great love for us by sending his son to die for us while we were still sinners. But the struggle is this. Struggle's real, right? God loves us. Then why are those who are against us live a better life than me? The psalmist shares his heart. The psalmist names his problem. God, I'm envious of those people. Or if we, if we really just want to get down to the depth of it. God, are you really good? Psalmist names his problem. He's struggling with God's goodness. He's envious of the wicked, struggling that God has done something wrong. And now he begins to help us understand the problem. He begins to dissect it in his own heart. Understanding the problem, the psalmist moves now to help us kind of figure out what's going on. What is he really struggling with? What would we be tempted to struggle with? Psalm 73, 4 through 5 says this, For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Their life is easy. They eat to be satisfied. They are not worried if they will have enough food on the table. They do not deal with sickness like I do. They live in luxury, comfort, and ease. And while they live on an easy life, they flaunt their excess and power over those who have little. We see this in verses 6 through 9. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out their fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues struts through the earth. You can see why the psalmist is struggling with the affluence of these people. Literally, he says that the clothing they wear displays the darkness of their heart. Their heart overflows like a river that has received too much rain and it breaches its banks and begins to destroy. I remember when I going up in California, we had a couple seasons. Um, in fall, what would happen is we'd be really dry and really windy. And so we end up having tons of fire, forest fires. And those forest fires would go, they'd come, and they'd be done. You move now into spring. 
and we get tons of rain. But forest fires, what they do is they loosen the ground and bringing the rain creates flash floods, creates these, these, these torrential um, disasters. And what would happen is this dirt and rain and water would come down these rivers and begin to overflow its banks and begin to destroy everything that comes to it, that it touches. I think of that when I think of this verse. The wicked are those people whose, whose lives overflow. They destroy. And it says, not only do they believe they are better than us, they set themselves up against God. It says that they set their mouths against the heaven. We also see it says here in verse 11, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? The psalmist is struggling. Again, at this point, you can understand the mind of the psalmist. It's not crazy. Like we can look around and see celebrities, athletes, or the wealthy, see their abuses of their wealth and power. We see them flaunting their goods. And we ask the question, God, why? Don't you see the money, how they use the money you allowed them to have? Don't you understand the needs of others? Let's be honest. This is our hearts. Sometimes it can come across as if I had their money, I would use it in a better way. If I had their wealth, I would care for people, but I don't. I actually look like this, verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked can you go back? I, I messed up what I said. I'm going back, but I don't. But I don't. I actually look and see, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, and they increase in their riches. The psalmist over and over and over. I see their abundance, and you say that you love me. I am your child. I don't get it. You almost feel abandoned. Why do I even follow you? We see this in verse 13. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. But what do I receive? They have riches, abundance, houses, food, fat, and satisfied. But me? For all day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. What a contrast. Rebuked versus fat and abundance. Innocence, washing of my heart versus the heart overflows with folly. I keep laying out this tension because the tension is real. We live in a world where pornography makes more money than the NHL, NFL, MLB, NBA combined. Yet we have missionaries who cannot raise money, enough funds to go out and share the news of Jesus Christ, life death, and resurrection to people who have never heard the name of Jesus before. We live in a world where Coca-Cola is recognized in more countries than the Bible. The psalmist is not unaware of this problem. He's very much aware. His language shows an honesty with himself, not neglecting any of these injustices around him. But while the psalmist's vision may be fuzzy, the psalmist does not let those feelings of struggle and frustration lead him. And we get to see the inner wrestle, which normally doesn't get seen in the Christian life, take place before us. We get to see it take place in God's ordained words before us. So if we name the problem, now we understand the problem, we can correct the problem. We see this. 
verse 15, if I had said thus, I will speak, if I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. It's interesting, just three verses before the psalmist rebukes the wicked for, for mocking God. How would you know God? How would God know? Does the Most High know anything? But in his fuzziness, he believes the same thing. God, do you really know anything? Do you really know what's good? Do you really love me? Because if you did, then I wouldn't be in the position that I am. I wouldn't be here. While that psalmist, while that was the psalmist wrestling his heart, it was not what the actually what the psalmist believed. Psalmist also understands his role in the leadership within the people of God. That the title of the psalm says is Psalm of Asaph. This was a role given to this person to lead the people of God in worship. And so he says, if I would have kept going down that road, I would have hurt the people of God. But in God's goodness and grace, I didn't. And so he says this, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. He goes back and says, I, I reflect on this. And then all it brings is burden, stress. Seeing the world through a fuzzy lens is wearisome, guys. The psalmist wonders why they are in the situation they are in, and the wicked prosper, and it's stressful. Hey, let me be honest. I'm prone to stress. I'm prone to worry. There's so many times when I allow the, my lens to be fuzzy, and I allow the world to define reality instead of allowing God to define reality. And in these moments, I do not sleep well. I feel sick. I feel it in my body. I'm irritable. I'm weary. But that wearisomeness, that wearisomeness can only happen for so long. We become exhausted. It puts us into a place of weakness, a place of neediness. And the psalmist gets to the end. The end of his ability to handle the, weary, the wearisomeness. To finally surrender. And he steps into the place of rest and clarity. And he says this. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned. Their end. One thing happened that promotes two results. One thing happens that clears his vision. The psalmist goes into the place where he meet, where the people of God meet God. It's interesting. The psalmist doesn't say that he needs to stop thinking bad thoughts. He doesn't say he needs to go to a small group this week. The psalmist doesn't say that he needs to get be better. The answer to the problem, the psalmist's problem, is rightly seeing God. He needed to be confronted by the majesty, glory, and beauty. Of God. The psalmist needed to turn back to rightly understand God's character, what God loves, what God hates, what God desires, what God deplores. He needed to see God. And in that day, the, the psalmist went to the temple. He went to the sanctuary to worship God. The word sanctuary here means holy place. So the people of God came face to face with God in the holy place. But when Jesus died on the cross, Jesus on the, died on the cross. He, he destroyed that curtain. He separated that curtain from the holy place to the normal place because no longer sin. Sin no longer separated God from his people. Because Jesus took on that punishment. Jesus took on that, 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 that shame for us. And so God, so we can now say this in 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? 
through Jesus' death on the cross. That separation, that sin had prevented us from coming face to face with God is now destroyed. We can come face to face with God anytime, anywhere. And in Christ, you are never far from God. Even if your fuzzy vision keeps you from seeing it. So when we come into the sanctuary of God, we see God, we worship God. And now, when we do that, we can begin to see the world through the lens of God. This lens now allows us to see us. Remember those two things. allows us to see ourselves properly and see the world properly. And when we do that, we find freedom in the solution. Verses 18 to 28. Psalmist is now reminding us how to correctly see the outside world. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make the, them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. And going before God, the psalmist is reminded of the end result of those who walk against God. While they seem like they're living the high life, in reality, their end is the same as everyone else. There's this famous phrase, you'll never see a U-Haul behind a hearse because everyone has the same ending outside of God. Everyone will come before God and give an account of their life. They will have to give an account for every act that they did that looked at God and said they know better than Him. Every act that said, you are not good, God. God, I know better than you. God, you see evil from my life. And in the end, there will be a punishment for every sin committed. We see this in Romans 6.23, for the compensation, the payment due to sin is death. The question, how do we know this to be true? Like, I'm trying to lay out a world, a way to see the world. How do we know this is true? We have tons of religions, tons of different ways of people. How do we know the way we see the world is true? I always say this. If Jesus really did die and rise again, then we know that God's judgment against all sin is true. If Jesus really did die and rise again, then we know all judgment against, God's judgment against sin is true. Please, listen to me. I plead with you. Take this serious reality. Take this serious. Take serious this reality. Heaven and hell are real. See in Ephesians 5, 6. Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins. For the anger of God will fall on all who disobey Him. If that's you in here, I ask you to be honest. Maybe for the first time you can see the world for really how it is. If you're actively living against God, be honest with yourself. For the wages, the compensation of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This means that when you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, then you receive eternal life. You actually receive now the good life. The good life you're created to have as we walk with God now. Yet, for a moment, for a moment, the psalmist lost sight of what it truly meant to live the good life. Yet for a moment, we can truly live sight. When our vision becomes funny, fuzzy, when the, the world becomes a story, we can forget. And he says this, When I became embittered and my innermost being was wounded, I was stupid and didn't understand. I was unthinking. I was an unthinking animal toward you. How easy, how easy it is, is this too, right? How easy is it to fall into that thinking how easy it is to lose perspective. How easy it is to be blind to what we have in Christ. Hear me. What you have in Christ is way better. 
Like, I know that who my father is. I know who I am in Jesus. That's, but we can lose perspective. That's why we come to church every week. That's why we do communion every week for a moment of self-reflection. That's why we encourage you to be a part of a small group because we can become blind and sometimes have our eyes be fuzzy for moments, weeks, months, years. We can be unthinking like an animal towards God who has given us so much. But in God's goodness, like a good father, he doesn't leave us there. Therefore, the psalmist says this, Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory. And this famous phrase, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on this earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength, the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The psalmist makes an amazing recognition amazing recognition that if I'm honest with you, never comes through the comfortable life. It never comes through ease because in ease, we think we're sovereign. We think we're good. The psalmist recognition is that his true need is God. While this world around him fails, if he has God, then what else does the psalmist need? See, when the psalmist says that he has lived for God in vain, that statement does not come from a heart of worldly abundance. It comes from a heart of great need, sorrow, pain. It comes from a, a heart that knows what it means to be without. Humor me for a second. Imagine that you lose your job tomorrow. Laid off. You did nothing wrong. But overnight, your life changes. You still have bills to pay. You have food to put on the table. You have kids to care for. Imagine for me, you get cancer. Simple routine checkup turns into a gut-wrenching blow to the chest. For some of you, it's not an imagination. You, you have walked through chemo. You have lived through this weakness. Your family, the thing about death is a real thing now. How does our passage speak to those situations? What does it mean to have God as better Listen to this. What then shall we say? This is Romans 8, 31 through 32. What shall we say then in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Here's a complex truth. The psalmist's deepest issue was not that he struggled with the riches of the wicked. It was not that he did not have his basic necessities. The psalmist's deepest struggle is that he forgot whose he was. He was having an identity problem. He forgot his identity as a child of God. He forgot that his father controls the furthest galaxies. The oceans stop at a certain point because their father, my father, his father, told the ocean to stop there. And when he forgets that truth, when we forget that truth, we look around and wonder. Wonder what God is keeping from us. But when we're confronted with that truth, we're confronted by what God, by God. We have this phrase, whom am I in heaven but you? Despite the earth failing, giving way, despite the brokenness of the earth, despite the wicked having abundance, whom do I have heaven but you? And that wondering what God is doing changes to wonder, wonder of who God is. 
change to a life of worship, leading to a deep trust in God, all through a correct vision of God. Now with this, his vision corrected, the psalmist now sees the world as through the eyes of his heavenly Father. So he says this, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my God, my refuge, that I may tell of your works. The psalmist sees those outside of walking with God as we now know, a walking with God through his son Jesus Christ. Those people who are outside of walking with Jesus, they'll perish. Whether they're the king of Babylon or the bum walking down the street, their end is the same. And while he sees those outside of Jesus in a new way, he sees himself in a new way. He sees him as God sees him. So all the psalmists can say at the beginning, God is good to Israel. Now he says this, it is good for me to be near that God. To find my shelter in him, find protection in him, find refuge in him. Like a child finding joy in the arms of a parent, we find joy in the arms of our God. This allows the psalmist to step into the rest and peace he already possessed, despite the craziness of life around him. He has a rest and peace because he knows that even in these moments of darkness, his heavenly Father is working out something for good. I see Jesus say this in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30 Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Sometimes this rest comes through suffering, through loss. But if through suffering I see and know and rest in God, if through loss I actually and I am able to experience the easy yoke of Christ. What more can I desire? Again, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. May we see the world through the lens of God that we might rest in Him.